following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for the past five weeks, We've been studying this quintessential passage on marriage written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. We have learned that marriage is meant to press us more deeply into the gospel, that God uses marriage to shape our character, to kill our self-centeredness as we sacrificially love our spouse. We've learned that for that to happen, marriage has to be a covenant, For it to do what it was designed to do, it must be in a lifelong, exclusive covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, and the marriage relationship has to take precedent over all the other relationships in our life. We also learn that marriage is meant to be a spiritual friendship spiked with romance. Two Christians walking together with Christ, shoulder to shoulder, heading towards the same destination, the new heavens and the new earth. But all that I have said thus far and all that we have learned from this great passage is built upon one great truth that I haven't really talked about directly. I have assumed it to be true, and that is in marriage, gender matters. For the next two weeks, I hope to explain what the Bible has to say about gender and marriage. I won't be able to to answer all your questions, but I hope to at least answer the big ones. And then I would love to do a follow-up podcast on the Sacred City Life podcast that answers all the questions that I don't have time for today. So yes, this is one of the times I'm saying, send me an email. (laughs) I'll try to answer them. Um, It's clear in this passage from Ephesians that we've read every single week that I've been dodging for the past four, five weeks here that Paul believes marriage is between a man and a woman. It's also clear that he believes both man and woman to have specific roles within the marriage. This is, of course, quite controversial today. 
and for good reason. It was actually quite controversial in Paul's day as well, but not for the reasons you're probably thinking. But before I can really get into all of that, I want us to realize something this morning. Paul, writing in the early first century, right, he's not inventing something new, right? He's not speaking as a man in a patriarchal society and bringing it, about, and bringing it from the culture to, 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 to talk about male headship and to talk about female submission and to talk about marriage. And he's not inventing anything new from the culture. What he's actually doing is quoting from Genesis 1, quoting from creation. Jesus himself quoted the same passage. So this isn't Paul doing something on his own here. Paul, quoting Jesus, quoting Moses, or quoting God in Genesis 1. That shows us that this concept of marriage isn't a social construct of a particular culture. Rather, it's the divine design of God himself. But I do not expect for you to take me at my word this morning. I realize I'm a man and a particular type of man. I realize that as well. I realize that my words could be heard from a patriarchal perspective. And you could believe that I am trying to subjugate women. I assure you, I desire no such thing. I desire the women in this church to flourish. We have 61 missional communities in our church. 29 of them are women. And some of our best leaders in our church are our ladies. I want them to flourish. I want all of our ladies to flourish. So as I throw myself on the cultural barbed wire this morning, I pray that you just climb over my body. I simply ask you to hear me out. Read the scriptures with me. Be gracious. And may God give us all ears to hear his word this morning. Well, as I said, this passage in Ephesians directly quotes the creation narrative in Genesis. So for us to understand what's really going on with gender and marriage, we must go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God creates, it's in the beginning, God. It doesn't talk about where God came from. The Bible assumes God. In the beginning, God. And then it says, creates the heavens and the earth. God says, let there be light, and there's light. God separates the light from the darkness, and he calls it day and night. He says it's good. And God's rhythm of creation goes on like this. He creates the earth, and he creates the waters, and the sky, and he, he calls them good. He creates plants, and he calls them good. He creates the planets and the stars, and he calls them good. He creates the living creatures in the water, the birds of the air, and he saw that it was good. Then God creates all the animals that roam the earth. And again, he saw that it was good. There's this rhythm, this benediction that keeps going on. God speaks, God creates, God says that it's good. But then the whole rhythm breaks when God creates us. And I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And I want to walk through this together. I'll also put it on the screen. There it is. Then God, so this is the rhythm, right? Then God said, look, 
let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing I want you to see from this passage is, the, is God himself refers to himself in the plural. Let us Make man in our image, in our likeness. It says human beings have been made in the image of God, but God himself, listen, exists in three persons. The name we have come up to, with to describe God's triune nature is Trinity. God is one but exists in three equal but distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, listen how theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes the triune nature of God. I've got the quote up on the screen. It's coming. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. Look, God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Now, this is a difficult concept to get our head around. But if you think about it, the Bible says that God is love. We're the only religion that says God is love. Now listen, if God existed as a unipersonal God in eternity past, that means God existed and no one else existed in eternity past, how could God be love? Love is not love until it has loved something. God couldn't be loved because there was no one else to love. But the Christian God is triune. There's three persons in the one Godhead. If you think, how can I think about this? Think about a triangle with a circle around it. Three sides of the triangle, all within the circle, right? That's how we can think about it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all within God. He existed, listen, now this is what's trippy. God existed in eternity past as a perfect love relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another nonstop, God is always infinitely and profoundly happy within himself. That should change your view of God today. God did not create mankind because he was lonely or because he was bored or because he wanted servants to just tell him how great he was. 
He was not in need of us in any way. God was brilliantly happy before creation. He was already completely fulfilled and completely satisfied in himself. And if God is already happy, that's good news for us. That, because, that means he, he isn't after our sour-faced, white-knuckled obedience. He didn't create us to get joy, but to give it. And we have been created by God to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. To enjoy God forever. We have been made to, to borrow a C.S. Lewis phrase that I've quoted last week, to dance with the Trinity. The Trinity itself is a kind of overture, kind of dance, a kind of humble love and glorifying of one another and we're made to dance with God himself. So, back to our text. The Bible teaches that both men and women are both made in the image of God. They are absolutely equal in dignity, value, and worth. They were both created by God as his image bearers. They both were given a job to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion is what he says. This command was given both to the man and the woman. That shows us that both of them are necessary to accomplish that goal. Now, what was that goal? He said, one, be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, it takes a man and a woman together to make a child. That's what he's talking about. God says men and women are meant to multiply and build families. But they're also called to, quote, subdue the earth and have dominion. This is called the cultural mandate. Man and woman are both called to be cultural creators. Men and women both are called to be architects and engineers, to build homes and cities, to make art and write books and make music and govern and rule cities, nations, states. The command is to create, to cultivate, and to civilize the world that is spread out before them. That's the command that was given to male and female, Adam and Eve, man and woman, go out and cultivate, create, civilize the world. This mandate was not just given to the man. It was given to both of them. That shows us that a woman's calling is much more than just staying at home with the kids. So here's my first point. Men and women are both created by God, equal in dignity, value, and worth, both given the mandate by God to go out into the world and make it a better place. And my second point is this. Men and women are equal, but not equivalent. Male and female are not the same. They are not interchangeable. The role of the husband and the role of the wife are equal, but not equivalent. They are not reversible. And once again, we see this in how God made them in the beginning. Genesis 1 that we just read is the 30,000 foot view of creation. It's written in a more poetic and musical style. And then in Genesis 2, 
It's the ground level view of the sixth day of creation, and it gives us a lot more of information on how we were made. Okay, remember the rhythm of creation. God says it is good. Remember how the rhythm broke with the creation of mankind. Well, Genesis 2 shows us why the rhythm broke. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter, so we're going to start in verse 7 this morning. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Okay, so here we go. God is doing something different. He just spoke the sun into existence, but here with man, he kind of scoops together the dust of the earth and he makes man and then he breathes into him. God got his hands dirty with man. He was like a potter creating a beautiful vase. But then he breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living creature. God personally breathes the soul into Adam. And now because of the soul, because of the spirit, he is very different from all the animals. As we keep reading there, God goes on and creates this beautiful garden, Eden, and he puts man in it. Genesis 2.15 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God puts him in the garden and gives him a job to do and a command to follow. Work the garden Make it flourish and prosper. Take the, the, everything that's there already and make it better. And he says this, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So God gave man a command, go out and work it, cultivate it, make it flourish. And he also gave him a command to follow. Uh, Don't eat of that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that one tree. If you eat it, you will surely die. Now listen, that is Adam's responsibility. Adam, make this place a better place. Don't eat from that one tree. Then verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Remember, he creates light, it's good. He creates animals, it's good. He creates planets, it's good. He creates Adam, it's not good. He breaks with his benediction. He breaks with his rhythm. He breaks with his poetic style. It's not good. Adam alone is not good. Verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Man alone could not accomplish the job God gave him to do. Man alone could not image God fully. 
There was something about man, listen, that was lacking. Every wife in here was like, mm-hmm. God says he needs a helper, listen, fit for him. Not just a helper, but a helper fit for him. Listen, this, this is what this means. Adam is deficient in something by design. He's half a puzzle, but needs his other piece to be whole, to be full to be readable, to be legible. If, if people are going to look at, a, at this thing and say, God is in that, there needs to be this male piece of the puzzle and this female piece of the puzzle put together in such a way that images God and people say, oh yeah, I see. I see something unique. I see something beautiful. And here's where God does something truly remarkable. I think it's just, pretty neat. God says, God sees Adam. He sees Adam. He creates him. He says, not good. He knows that he's missing half the puzzle. He knows he's deficient in himself by design, but I don't think Adam really knows this yet. Adam's a little slow on the uptake. That is not the first time that's been said of men or the last time that's been said of men, right? Didn't really catch on. So what does God do, right? He, Adam doesn't know he, he's lacking his fit helper, right? He's at lacking his other side. So what God does is takes all of the other animals that have been created and he walks them before Adam and he makes Adam do a cultural mandate type of thing and name all the animals, can you see this picture? Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, well, I think I can skip to 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So can you see this picture? God is ushering every single animal one by one in front of Adam to name. And Adam is going, Elephant, aardvark, orangutan, <laughs> right? But he's also going, nope, no, nope, nope. That was a weird one, God. Like, he's going down the list. And listen, as he's doing this, he's, in a sense, isolating himself. He's realizing that is not like me. That is, I would not cuddle with that. No, right? Like, no, no, no. And all of a sudden, he's becoming aware of his incompleteness. He's becoming aware that there's a part of me that's missing. None of these things are the missing piece to my puzzle. None of them are a fit helper for me. And then verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Literally knocks him out. And while he slept, one of his ribs, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So just like God reached in the dirt and made Adam and then breathed into him, now he takes the woman, he, the bare materials necessary, he takes from the side of man and he makes a woman fit for Adam. So, 
God here knocks out Adam and performs the first surgery and removes one of his ribs. And from this rib, God makes Eve. And then interesting what he does is he walks her down the aisle and he gives her in marriage to Adam. Look at verse 21. So the, well, I already said that. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and look, brought her to the man. This context from Genesis chapter two allows us to read Ephesians in a lot clearer light, to understand what Paul was talking about when he said, husbands, lay your life down for your wife. See, that is exactly what Adam had done. Adam had first submitted himself to God. I'm lacking I trust you. Adam laid himself down before God and said, I trust you, God. Adam had given of himself. He was completely vulnerable. He was unconscious and laid wide open so God could reach inside of him and create a wife for him that would complete him. Adam gave up a rib to get a bride. And for all the young men who are looking for a bride, here's the order. Submit yourself to God. Be willing to give up something to get a wife. Love is costly. Back to our text. So God knocks him out. Adam submits himself to God. God reaches in, takes a rib out, makes Eve, brings Eve to Adam, just like he brought, I, hate, I don't make a comparison here, I'm just saying, he ushered all the animals before Adam, he's like, nope, 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 nope. He brings Eve, he walks Eve down the aisle, presents her to Adam. What's Adam say? I hear Etta James, Adelaide. That's what I hear when I see this, right? <laughs> this at last is bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, look, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What Adam is saying here, when he sees his spouse for the first time, he's saying, now at last, I see my better half. Now I see the other piece to my gender puzzle. Now I get what I'm supposed to do. Now I get who I'm supposed to be. Now there's a real sense that a man learns how to, a male learns how to be a man by finding the person of the opposite sex that allows him to be that new gender intergendered relationship, right? I learn how to be a man by loving my wife well. I can't learn how to be a good man with the bros. I can't, unless the bros are telling me how they treat their wife. That's the only possible way, but like I said, well, I didn't say this, but bros don't do that. Okay? Adam is saying, now I get, and this is, Key. Now I get who I'm supposed to be. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
Now I understand me. Listen to this quote by one of the greatest theologians of our day and age, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. Get it up there. If you believe in what it says in Genesis 1 about God making heaven and earth, and the binaries in Genesis are so important, heaven and earth, sea and dry land, and so on, you end up with male and female. It's about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. He skips to Revelation. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. The last scene in the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth and the marriage of Christ and his church. It's not just one or two verses here and there which say this or that. It's an entire narrative which works with this complementarity so that a male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. Think about it. Even at the atomic level, all the universe is held together by the attraction of positive and negative forces. Every cell in the human body is stamped either XX or XY. No other. God says marriage must contain this diversity. It must have both genders to be a real marriage. Men and women have been created by God with designed complementary deficits. The man reflects the glory of God in one way and the woman in another. The roles of the husband and wife are equal, but not equivalent. They are equal in value, but not equivalent in specialities. So what are our gender specialties? Now, first off, let, let, me, let me do another quote, okay? Here we go. Gender comes in specialties. Specialties are things we all might do sometimes. But the specialist focus, focuses on especially doing them. We may do many things for each other that are the same. But the gender magic happens when we lean into the asymmetries. Just as physically, both males and females need androgen and estrogen hormones, and it is the relative amounts that differ in the sexes. So the gender distinctives are things that both men and women may be able to do and do do. But when done as specialties to one another, they propel relationships. So what are our gender specialties? Now this is where I think you're going to be shocked. This is what's so controversial about what the Bible says about gender and marriage. 
God does not give us a list and say, these are the masculine traits, these are the feminine traits. Here's how, exactly how this is going to look in marriage, here's exactly how for men, and this is exactly how this is going to work, work for ladies. He doesn't give us an easy answer. In fact, so much of what you think is masculine and feminine is a result of the culture you grew up in. And the Bible doesn't define the essence of masculinity and femininity in cultural ways. It doesn't. It has to speak to it sometimes in very specific instances where it's trying to apply this Genesis 1, Genesis 2 reality to it. Let me give, let me give you an example. Many people think that the Bible is misogynist and teaches that women are meant to be seen and not heard or should be weak and submissive to men. The Bible does not teach that. The Quran does. The Quran actually says to beat your wife, to get her in line. Listen to how Rutgers professor of ancient Jewish history, Gary Rensberg, summarizes this point. Open your Bible at random and you will notice something striking. Female characters abound. And it's not simply a lot of women, it's a lot of strong women. These women are the antithesis of what we might expect from a patriarchal society. They are not passive, demure, tired, or timid, and submissive, but active, bold, fearless, and assertive. They are also not what we would expect on contemporaneous Near Eastern literature in which women generally do not play leading roles in the narrative. So this is what he's getting at. This, no doubt, the Bible is written inside a patriarchal narrative. That's no, no doubt. That's what's going on. But the Bible narrative itself is subversive to such a culture by giving strong, dominant women voices, right? You, you have women speaking to, walking boldly into speaking to kings. You have, there's, I, I don't have time to go into all of the areas, so to say that the Bible is patriarchal and it's meant to subjugate women, it's to misunderstand the Bible completely. When I said in the beginning, I'm a certain type of man, what I meant by that was I drive a truck, I have an abrasive personality, I'm a firstborn American male who loves football, I am, stereotypical in a lot of ways, okay? I'm not gonna apologize for that, all right? I like to shoot guns and do man things. See, that I just did it, man things. Bible doesn't say those are man things. Culture says they're man things. That's not what the Bible says about all these things. So what do we know about gender roles in the Bible? First, Nowhere in scripture are women called to submit to men. Paul in Ephesians 5 does not say women submit to the men in your life. He says very sp specifically women submit to the men in your life. No, no, that's not what he says. He says very specifically wives 
submit to your own husbands. And he's not speaking to every woman out there and every wife out there. He's speaking specifically to Christian wives. So what we're talking about here isn't for the public square. You're not going to get the, from the Bible that women can't be managers or women can't be leaders or women can't be president for that matter. This is a gender-specific command for Christian wives. It is not a universal rule meant to subjugate women. Christian wives, you are called as your husband's fit helper to sacrificially submit to his leadership. You are called by God to help him grow into a fit spiritual leader of your home. You are called to come alongside of him and help him become the man that he's called to become that he can go out in the world and lead and initiate and take responsibility. Listen, this is the role of the, the wife Come alongside her husband. It's sacrificial submission. Submitting myself to Christ as I submit myself to my husband. And I'm working to be a fit helper to him. Second, Christian husbands. You are called to sacrificial leadership for the sake of your wife and family. Now, I want you to see here again, this is not some kind of patriarchal male dominance and superiority. It's kind of, do you, do you see what, let's go back to Ephesians 5. Do you see what God has told the husbands to do? Right? Paul says that men are to do what? They're to cleanse. They're to wash. They're to nourish. They're to cherish. Are those man words? Men, do we use those words a lot with one another? <laughs> Cleanse, wash, nourish, cherish, right? This is not, these are not American man words. These are not male dominance, patriarchal words. Paul is literally saying men lead gently, kindly, sacrificially, intimately. It's a sacrificial leadership. It's not walking into a room and, woman, get behind me, let's go. There is no, you submit to me, I'm the head. This is a command, men, to listen to our wives, to care for and nurture and cherish our wives, to seek out their counsel when we're making decisions, to involve them in our plans because we're not two but one. God, it's in, isn't it interesting that God gives our brains two halves, right? And these things need to work together, Right? It's not the first time 
men have been accused of having half a brain, right? We need to come, that's the missing piece. We need to involve one another in our decisions. We need to, men as the head, it's the the illustration Paul uses, were created, here it is, to lead, to initiate, and to take responsibility. Women, as the body, were created to nurture, receive, and help her husband grow into a godly man who leads the home to worship God in all things. This is how a husband and a wife work together to subdue creation and bring glory to God together as one new unit, as the two come together as one. They're both created with divine, divine and divinely inspired deficits that are lacking until they come together. And it's what's interesting is every couple, this is different. Every couple brings different deficits together. There's not just like a male set of deficits and a female set of deficits, right? This isn't personality style. This isn't character traits. The Bible doesn't talk about gender character traits. The Bible doesn't say women can't be strong-tempered, can't be vocal, can't lead well. It doesn't say those things. Most of what we say, when we say act like a man, most of what we think about is culturally defined and not biblically defined. Act like a man, this is what it means. Lead, take responsibility, initiate, step into it, pursue a wife, pursue her emotionally, pursue her intimately, pursue a vocation, get after it, work hard, invite her in, help me babe, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I need your help. Wherever your wife is gifted, I guarantee you there's ways that you're not gifted in that way. She might be really gifted emotionally. You might not be. That's not just male, female. Sometimes men are gifted emotionally and female are, and the the wife is not gifted emotionally. And you have to work together in that. You have divine design deficits. This is how like, there is a difference between gender and just our sex. There is a difference there. Masculinity and femininity, we learn that by loving the other who's not like us. We learn to be a man as we lead and take responsibility and initiate. And you learn to be a woman as you receive, as you nurture, as you care. This is how we bring glory to God together. But, In Genesis 3, when everything was at its best, God creates man, God creates woman, he puts them together. Adam speaking poetry. Come on, men. This at last is bone of my bones, right? I don't know if that was, you know, a rap song or if that was just poetry, but whatever it was, it worked, right? When everything was at its best, when Adam and Eve were glorifying God and enjoying him together in their marriage, listen, it was their intergendered marriage that Satan first attacked. 
And he did it by getting them to, getting them to switch roles. He did this by allowing or basically tricking them for her to take the lead and for Adam to be passive. It was their marriage that Satan first attacked. Adam fails to lead his wife, right? He, what was Adam's charge? Subdue the garden. Don't eat from the tree. There's a snake in the garden, right? Satan is walking around, slithering around, whatever he's doing. He's in the garden. And it's Adam's responsibility to lead, take responsibility, to initiate, and to kill and crush the snake, right? Now, he can lead in different ways. He can, he can lead by grabbing the snake by the tail and whipping and cutting his head, ripping its head off. He could do that. Or he could lead in a different way. Honey, do that real quick. Do that real quick, right? Right? <laughs> hey, some of y'all men, that's how you lead, Right? But that's still, he's still taking the initiative. Honey, go, go ahead. You, that's all you. Right? And there's a lot of women who, right? And take care of it. That's okay. That's leading. But what he does is steps back. She listens to the word of Satan who twists the word of God. And she eats the apple. And then she gives it to him. And he, he doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't say, honey, what are you doing? He doesn't wash her with the water of the word that Paul tells us in Ephesians. Don't you remember what God said? Don't you remember? He said, if we eat the tree of the garden, we're gonna die. Don't you remember he's given us all this good out here to do and to live in this perfect society? What are you doing, lady? No, 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 no. He doesn't lead. He doesn't initiate. He doesn't take responsibility. Oh, okay, it's good. That, that was good. Oh, okay, then let's do that. And it's when Adam eats. See, this is what it means to be the head. It means your responsibility, man. You're responsible for the state of your family. You're responsible for your, the soul even of your wife in a, in a diminished sense under the authority of God. We're gonna present our wives back to God, right? Ephesians tells us, five tells us. You're responsible for her. To love her, to care for her, to nurture her, to cherish her, to wash her with the water of the word, to make sure she's following Jesus, to speak the truth, of her, truth to her when she's hearing the lies of the enemy. And instead of lead, initiate, and take responsibility, Adam steps back, eats, and all creation gets cursed. And all, all the way through the story, very rarely, I, I, I would almost say off the top of my head, nowhere does Eve get blamed. Adam's always the head. Adam's always responsible. It was Adam's failure to lead and initiate that brought the curse. And since that moment, our gender differences haven't been seen as a source of completion, but as competition, as occasions for oppression and exploitation. A sinful husband will bully and abuse his wife Verbally, physically, or sexually. A sinful wife will use sex to control and manipulate her husband. I once heard a, a Bible teacher say, yeah, my husband's the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head. You completely misunderstand the entire analogy if you have that idea. A sinful husband will abdicate his responsibility to lead 
the family to his wife and hand over all the child-rearing decisions to her. Men, do you realize over and over in scripture, the wife is not addressed when it comes to parenting? It's the, it's the father. Fathers, raise your children up. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger or wrath. We are the ones who are taking a temperature of our home and saying, what does my daughter need spiritually? What does my son need spiritually? How can I lead this? Do I need to buy books? What kind of books can I buy for my wife? What kind of programming can I bring into the family to help us grow into maturity? The husband is the one doing that. Not, we've, you know, a, diver, a, a division of labor. She takes care of the kids, I just pay the bills. No. A sinful husband says, I'm tired from work. Honey, you do, you do you. You lead. And a sinful wife accepts that leadership joyfully. Yes, I get to do what I want to do. I'm tired of waiting for him to make decisions anyways. And she runs roughshod over her husband. Here's what's unique. The Bible does not say who's the, whoever's the better leader leads the family. Women, hear this. In many different homes, in this church, you are the better leader. That does not change. This is not pragmatism. Whoever's the best leads. It's a divine role given by God that the husband is meant to lead. Many men who are not strong leaders, it's the hardest thing in their life to do. They feel completely inept. They feel completely incapable. And God gave them you to complete them, to help them and cause them to take responsibility and to lead the family and to initiate and to grow up into a man. And vice versa is the same. Now, as I close, there are many who will say, and I just skipped over this, God says, I'm gonna make a fit helper for Adam. I get it. There are many in here who say, to be called my husband's helper is demeaning. It implies that he's better than me. To submit to his leadership means that we are not equal. Now, I hear your concern. But let me answer you in two ways. First, the Hebrew term helper is azar, E-Z-E-R. And in the Hebrew, God himself is called our helper. If it doesn't demean God to be our helper, then it cannot demean a wife to be her husband's helper. Okay? Secondly, remember the Trinity. Remember how the son submits to the father. And the Father glorifies the Son. That Jesus submits and yet is still equal with the Father. If submission doesn't diminish Jesus' glory, but actually enhances it, neither does a wife's submission dim her glory. Nobody says, you know, Jesus is of lesser glory than the Father, right? Hopefully we don't. If you do, that's heresy. You need to get in theology 101, Right? So, it does not diminish your glory. It doesn't diminish your glory. It actually enhances your glory. When a strong woman can come underneath her husband, his authority, and when a, when a, a passive husband can accept her, her abilities and can grow and can learn from her and step out into the world with passion and, and take responsibility, that brings glory to God. When a dominant 
driven man can humbly bring his wife along and listen to her and, and, and grow in his understanding and help her flourish, God's glory is put on display. Now, as I close, that's the second time I use that. <laughs> I need to address single people in the room. What does all this mean if you're single? First off, it does not mean that you need to get married to be whole. Rather, Jesus completely redefined singleness. If you are single, you can be married to Christ. Like that's part of what he's saying here in Ephesians. The mystery of marriage is a pointer to the ultimate reality that we have been completed in Christ and one day we will be so united in God that we'll be caught up in that divine dance of the Trinity. Married or single, marriage is meant to point us to Christ. He will complete you. Husbands, Jesus is the real leader. Wives, Jesus is the real helper. Jesus is the true and better spouse that we're all looking for that will actually, when we embrace him and as we bring him into ourselves, he will actually make us into either a sacrificial leader, men, or sacrificially submissive, ladies. The Trinity displays both roles and does not diminish one or the other. The role of leader, the role of helper, and in the dance of the Trinity, the one who sacrificed the most, the one who could most glorify the other, is the greatest. Think about this. Adam gave up a rib to get a bride that was beautiful and spotless. Jesus gave up his life for a bride who was ugly and sinful to make her beautiful and spotless. That's us. Think about that. God, perfectly happy, broke up the party to come to earth to love us wretched sinners, morally reprehensible, impure brides, every one of us. And yet Christ comes to marry us. Christ comes to give his life to make us pure and spotless by faith now and in full when he comes again. Jesus, God of God, eternally present and happy with the Father and Holy Spirit, willfully chose to leave that perfection to walk a human life, our human life, in order to please the Father by redeeming us with his precious blood. And so how do you lead men? You lead by remembering the body and the blood that was broken for you. How did Jesus lead? Jesus did not walk like a red-blooded American male. Jesus was humble. He was bold, but he was humble. He was strong, determined, self-sacrificial, hardworking. We could go down the list, but he was also gentle and meek. That's what it meant, means to lead. And wives, what does it look like to submit? We could look to the same Jesus. He submits to the Father. Right? As we come to the table this morning, I, I pray that we would confess our brokenness, our sinfulness, our need for Jesus, and we would see him as our true and better spouse.
the one who loves us perfectly, the one who leads us perfectly, the one who submits himself for us perfectly. And that would enable us to do that in our relationship as well. Father, I pray that you would, you would burn the beauty of this, these intergender relationships. You would burn the beauty of it into our brain, that we would have the picture in the back of our mind of a sacrificial husband like Christ and a submissive wife like Christ. We would sacrificially lead and sacrificially submit as we both are submitting ourselves to Christ and that the beauty of that would be compelling to us. We would push away from the partisan politics of our culture that wants to either worship women or demean women. And we push away from it and we say we're both equal in the eyes of God and dignity and value and worth, and yet we're not equivalent. We're not the same. We're different. And our differences, our diversity, make the union between male and female more beautiful and a better representation of the glory of God than we could have on our own. Father, I pray that you would do this for us. And I pray for those of us who have sinned against our wife, sinned against our spouse by failure to lead or by domineering or by passivity or whatever it is that you would bring repentance to our heart and you would encourage us through the grace of Christ and you would strengthen us through the Holy Spirit to love, lead, cherish, respond, nurture, receive in the way you've designed us to do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.